Well, welcome to our read aloud, <laughs> our Valentine's special. Uh, we have Ohioana and three Ohio authors of romance novels and some really interesting settings and books in their books and stories. So um, I don't want to take up time. I want to let Linda, executive director of Ohioana, take over and introduce our three readers. Thank you. We just said we wished Valentine's Day were a different month. It would be warmer. But I have to say this year, it's a lot warmer and easier walking than it was last year. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> um, Susan was here last year, and it was not great. It was not great. Uh -huh. So thank you. Uh, and it was beautiful with the fireplace. Yeah. We're, we're glad to be here, but getting in was not easy. Um, as Ruth said, I'm Lynn Hanks, and I'm the executive director of the Ohioana Library. And just a, a small commercial for Ohioana. Uh, we're uh, a special collection uh, dedicated to collecting the work of Ohio writers, information about Ohio writers, musicians, and artists. We publish a quarterly um, magazine, and they're the Ohioana Quarterly. It's a the Ohio Review Journal, in which you'll find a listing of all the books that are added to our collection each uh, quarter, and reviews of recently published books. <coughs> Some people go, oh, well, how many books do you get here? Well, Ohio authors are wonderful, and they're very prolific. <laughs> and we add to the collection between 600 and 1,000 books each year. And uh, we're one of those agencies that we're private, not for profit, but we do get a state subsidy, and you all know how that is going these days. So, um, but since I've been at Ohioana, which is more than 20 years, our book buying budget is zero. So the books that we add to our collection are all donated by the publisher or the author. And the authors that are here today have donated their books to our collection, and we're proud to have them part of the collection. The other thing that we do um, are annual awards and our Ohioana Book Festival, which will be in May, and I know Ruth will be sharing more throughout campus about that. So without further ado, I want to say that, you know, I was never a big romance book reader, until I met the wonderful members of the Central Ohio Fiction Writers in the cha a chapter of the um, Romance Writers of America. You have never met a more wonderful, warm, open group of writers. And they're great fun. And Maybe I shouldn't say this, but I don't think they take themselves too seriously. They enjoy writing, they enjoy their audience, and they have great, great fun with them. But they're very, very hardworking. And I just want to remind you that in this day when people are saying, well, people aren't reading books, romance books are outselling all other genre. And the number of books sold and read are exceeding uh, previous years each year. 
So we have, we need their books, we love their books. I'm going to just go in the order they are in your program, and I'd first like to introduce Leanne Renee Hebert. Uh, Leanne came to us actually from New York, where she's an actress and a full-time writer, and selling it on some of her other uh, jobs. But she's really came, uh, comes from rural Ohio. She grew up in Ohio. Uh, her family's in the Dayton area and graduated from Miami University for Ohio. Um, Leanne has won uh, a pair of prime, prime the Prism Awards. Prism Awards. Prism Awards for her first novel, A Gothic Victorian Paranormal Romance. Um, the title of which is Strange, The Strangely Beautiful Tale of Miss Percy Parker. She's continuing to work on this series. She has two books out, four books in contact, and we're beginning the beginning of uh, a young adult series uh, that will be coming out this summer. So, I introduce you to the end. Hi, everyone. Um, so I want to thank you all for being here. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Ohioana. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you, everybody here. Thank you, Chris from COFW and, uh, and to the wonderful membership there. Um, they've been a home away from home. Um, I, I love my Ohio roots. I talk about it often. I also love New York City. So home can be in more than one place. Home is definitely Ohio. Home is also New York, which I love. And home is also London, England in 1888. So I've been obsessed with 1888, specifically since I was a child. I fell in love with Phantom of the Opera. I thought at the age of 12 I could write a sequel. This didn't go so well, but it did, what it did do was give me a passion for writing, writing every single day of my life. So I pursued a route in theater, and this was great. I loved being a professional actress, but at the end of the day, writing novels was always my great love. So I came back to this, and after about a nine-year journey from the first idea that I had for this till the time I saw it on the shelf, it was nine years of developing a series that um, is, these are really kind of the books of my heart. Um, the background on this is that it does take place in 1888. That's the year of Jack the Ripper. One of the things I love about history is that you can play with it, you can have fun with it. In something like Jack the Ripper, which is an unsolved case, it could be anything, like a demon from the underworld, which is what I've decided Jack the Ripper, my Jack the Ripper is. So not only am I playing with Victorian era that I've loved since I was a kid, but I also love the Victorian paranormal. I love the idea that for me, when I think of the Victorian era, I think of ghost stories. I think of Charles Dickens. I think of Wilkie Collins, The Woman in White. I think about all of the wonderful things that Poe was doing in the 19th century, one of my favorite authors of all time. And I thought, you know, the, all that paranormal stuff, the spooky stuff, that's what really gets me. So that's what I wanted to write. I wanted to write a Victorian ghost story with a whole lot of fantasy elements that I loved from, from classic fantasy novels growing up. So I combined all my favorite things, history, fantasy, paranormal, and yes, a good love story into the series. Um, my theatrical roots have kind of come back to me um, because this has also been optioned for a Broadway musical. It's currently in, in progress. We have, uh, we have the draft of the musical put together. There's a script that I've worked on as a play, I have a background in playwriting. And um, we have a wonderful composer who is the musical director of Memphis, which is currently on Broadway and just won a bunch of Tonys, so good for them. Um, it looks good for us. We've got some of the production team that worked on Wicked, 
which hasn't done too poorly for itself too either. So um, we're hoping to have a workshop production uh, in a regional theater some point this year. Uh, we're gonna debut some songs in New York uh, next month, which I'm very, very excited about. So um, if you follow me on my various social networking platforms, I will certainly keep people updated about that. It's a million steps and dollars from here to Broadway. So that's a long, we're just in the beginning process of that, but it's been a really, really thrilling thing because uh, my books are pretty dramatic. So they actually, translate pretty well to the stage I've found. So my, my, my uh, theatrical roots coming back, proving to me that no matter what it is that you are passionate about in your life, stay passionate about it because you'll find a way, if you, if you just keep working at it, you'll find a way to bring all your great loves together in one, in one project. So um, I'm gonna read a, one of my favorite scenes from this book. Um, the heroine, Miss Percy Parker, she is entirely white. I mean, she looks like a ghost. She can see ghosts, she can speak to ghosts, she has talents that she doesn't tell anybody because she already looks like a freak. She is entirely without color. Uh, in Victorian society, she would have been a complete outcast. Even in today's society, she would be an outcast. So she's sent to this exclusive academy. She's enraptured by her mathematics professor, but of course he is um, aloof and very distant uh, because he has the secret he can't tell anybody. He's a ghostbuster. So he leads the guard, and the guard, there are six mortal individuals in London who don't, no one knows who they are, they work under cover of night, and they're looking for a seventh member to join their ranks. So there's a prophecy that the, the guard of six, these six Ghostbusters will become seven, but they don't know who to look for, and they certainly wouldn't expect it to come in the form of this meek, timid girl who looks like a ghost. So all of this, there's a bit of a dance between the leader of the guard, Alexi, and Percy at the school, as they figure out that each of them knows more than the other one is sharing. So here's a moment when um, they both discover that they have the same ability. Now, one of the things that Alexi cannot do as leader of the guard, he can't hear ghosts. He can see them, he corrals them, he ghost busts them, but he can't hear them. So as, as some of these talents become to, to come to light, uh, these two find one another quite useful. So this is when Percy is, is coming into the professor's office for a tutorial. On his office door, there was a folded piece of paper marked Miss Parker. The note inside read, I shall likely be otherwise engaged at the time of your arrival, Miss Parker. The door is open. You may enter and await me inside. Reichman. Percy folded the note with care and tucked it into her corset, placing the lovely spiral script next to her heart. Dreaming at a note of a more personal bent, she suddenly flushed, appalled at how easily her fancy took flight. Glancing furtively about the room, she couldn't help but make a bold dash to the professor's phonograph, a luxury of which she was sure her convent would never have approved. Her skirts fluttering as she knelt, Percy rifled through ornate boxes of Bach and opera before her eye fell upon a cover edged in red velvet with gilt letters, Requiem by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Her choice was made. Placing the disc upon the turntable, she turned the crank, the needle made contact. Voices and orchestration burst forth. The melody began as a simple, ascending line of strings, mournful and glorious, and it halted Percy's breath. She stepped away, beaming, relishing every note. It was the lacrimosa. But as the choir began to sing, their voices ebbing and flowing, a most intriguing thing followed. Within the first few bars, as if a summons bell had tolled, spirits began to pour through the walls, the windows, and the ceiling of the professor's magnificent office. Each note of music drew a new soul from the fabric of the air as if every spirit of Athens Academy had been beckoned to fill the room in rapture. 
Percy stood amazed and delighted. In addition to the more familiar haunts of the Academy, the spectral retinue of the nearby British Museum must also have been called. Spirits of all times, all cultures, all classes, they all twirled around her, dancing and reveling to the gorgeous death mass, singing in unison with the choir. Some looked down and evaluated Percy. She returned their hollow gazes, and they were greatly pleased. Like a butterfly shedding its chrysalis, Percy tossed her shawl, her glasses, and gloves, all the things that hid her skin, tossed them upon the desk, and abandoned herself as the spirits did to the music, sharing a bond with them that went far beyond their mutual coloration. Her skirts spun out around her. Constance, who was haunted the science library, wafted near, her spiral curls bouncing weightlessly in the air. Hello, Miss Percy. This one, it just so happens, is our favorite. However did you know? Percy just giggled and spun beside her ghostly friend, closing her eyes in a moment of ecstasy. The entire lot, human and spirits, failed to notice as the office door quietly opened and shut. Alexei stood just inside the threshold to his office and raised an eyebrow at the spectral bedlam within. Setting his jaw, he stared at the veritable army of spirits that had collected in his office uninvited. He folded his arms and shook his head, a veritable column of black fabric, and the haunts began to notice. He shooed each off with a wave of his hand, and they knew enough not to disobey. Miss Percy Parker, what a curious one she was. He wished the mortal young woman could see what kind of chaos she had stirred up, but surely she couldn't. One spirit remained unaware of his presence, staring at Miss Parker with such longing that he reluctantly decided to let it stay. The spirit, a hollow-eyed girl with ringlets and clothing from long past, reached towards Percy, wishing to touch her. Alexei understood. When left to her own devices, Miss Parker was neither shy nor awkward. She was radiant. After a moment, the spirit turned and caught Alexei's gaze. He nodded a slight greeting. The ghost's eyes widened and a hand flew to her lips, although he wasn't sure why. He shook his head and stalked to his desk. Hearing sudden firm footfalls against the wooden floor, Percy opened her eyes and cried out, embarrassment surging. She fervently blurted apologies, ran to the phonograph to stop the music. Let it play, Miss Parker. Perhaps you will better absorb your studies when they are underscored by Mozart. Thank you, Professor, for yet another instance of your kind patience. I am... The Professor narrowed his eyes, clearly wishing to hear no more. Percy scurried to her seat. Constance floated to her side. Percy glanced up and tried to nod the ghost towards the door. Constance just grinned and shook her head, refusing. The entirety of the lesson paused, passed, with Constance hovering just behind and to the side of Percy's chair in what appeared to be an attempt to distract her. Dread that the professor might finally snap under the strain of her odd behavior and sent her packing from the academy made Percy's hands shake but she certainly could not explain to him that she was having difficulty concentrating because the deceased was breathing down her neck. How could yet another mad admission aid to her credibility? Once the professor had finished a complex little lecture, he sat back in his chair, folded his hands in his lap. Constance, who had watched the entire lesson as if she too were his pupil, leaned in, her translucent face just above Percy's head. Feeling the cold draft and the ghost's wake, Percy batted at her hair in irritation. That will be all for today, Miss Parker, the professor declared. Percy gathered her shrouds in haste. Constance took this opportunity. She whirled to Percy's side and whispered, You realize, Percy, that he can see me too. 
what? The professor glanced up from his book. Percy stared at him, wide-eyed, and then at the ghost, and then back at the professor. The professor furred his brow, looked at the ghost, then back at Percy. You can see Constance? The professor frowned. Constance? I did not know the two of you were acquainted. But you can see her. If you mean this transparent woman with curled hair and dated fashion, yes, Miss Parker, I can. Percy nearly wept with joy at the revelation. You, strange one, who never ceased to surprise me, how did you know that she's Constance? Well, she told me, sir. She told you. Ah, he cannot hear me, Percy. That is the difference between the two of you, Constance clarified. Well, yes, sir, she told me. You can see and speak with them? Well, yes, sir. My, my, Miss Parker, how very useful. Percy narrowed her eyes. I beg your pardon, sir. Never mind. When do this ability of yours begin? It took the professor nodding encouragement to convince her to continue. Well, it has been with me since I can remember, professor. My earliest memories are of Gregory, an Elizabethan spirit. In life, his daughter was trampled by a horse, and I became a surrogate for his restless soul. It was only because of my fondness for him that I knew I had any sort of ability. I never thought anything amiss until I unwittingly told the Reverend Mother. She, of course, was quite shocked. Oh, dear Gregory, I hope he's found peace. Oh, but forgive my prattling on, Professor. No, Miss Parker, it's fascinating. Could you always see them, Professor? No, he replied simply and seemed taken by sudden memories. Well, when did it happen that you could, sir? I'm afraid, Miss Parker, that that would take more time to explain than I have to give. Did anyone other than your mother superior know of your ability? No, she did not want anyone to declare me mad. Of course, there was the day that she sent a priest to exorcise Gregory from the courtyard. I made a terrible fuss, screaming that they didn't dare take my best friend away. I can't say I endeared myself to the priesthood after that. And Reverend Mother made it clear to keep my sight secret ever after. Oh, but Professor, how happy this makes me to know that I'm not the only one, that perhaps you might know why. Do not. Expect answers from me, Miss Parker. Forgive me, sir, it's just that I pray desperately for someone who knows something about. We are all looking for something, Miss Parker. When Percy glanced at Constance, she nodded in agreement. And on that note, I happen to need to look for something, and so I bid you adieu. Percy rose, dazed. Thank you, Professor. Have a lovely evening. Same to you, Miss Parker. Percy once again gathered her things, gestured for Constance, and left the office. He could see you, Constance. I am amazed. Constance glided at her side down the hall. Oh, there is something to all of this, Percy. I can feel it. A fellow student was walking up the stairwell, so the conversation paused as they descended the steps. Constance resumed speech as soon as Percy was free to respond and not appear mad. I saw the way you gazed at him when he wasn't looking. Percy experienced an odd ache and said nothing. She shook a finger at her non-corporeal companion, a firm warning to not speak of such scandalous things again. Until next haunting Constance, the two friends waved goodbye. But as Constance vanished through a nearby wall, Percy could hardly contain herself. Surely fate was beginning to find her. Thank you.
And um, I do have uh, both the first and the second book uh, here if anybody wants to buy them. They're $7. I'm a cheap date. So um, any, any, any questions, any thoughts? I know we're saving things for the end. Should we wait, or is there, are we doing a quick if round here? a burning question. A burning question? Take it now, but otherwise, let's move on, and uh, we can ask questions of all three of those of you. Thank you, Thank you. Now I have to pick up where you left off. <laughs> yes, you, you have us primed and set up. The next person that I would like to introduce is historic romance novelist, Susan G. Hey, no. Yes, I said it right. <laughs> hey, no, it's got me. Um, her, Susan is the wife of a world, world minister, and she's a mom. Um, she received the Romance Writers of America's Golden Heart Award and the Regency Historical Category for Mistress by Mistake. And isn't the Golden Heart for your first novel? It's actually for unpublished. For unpublished. So then it was picked up and sold yeah. and is now a book. Um, her latest book, Temperance in training. I love so many of uh, the romance books because I like reading them, but if you can listen to them on CD or tape, you just see the wonderful play on words that, that, that these writers uh, create for us. And it's just so much fun. But with that, I'm going to Susan and ask her to read from your last okay. Well, my latest release. Okay. Currently, Damsel in Distress. The one with the purple cover. <laughs> we color code everything. That's <laughs> um, I am Susan G. Hano, and uh, I've been in Ohio for since the early 90s, however long that's been. I was two. And uh, <laughs> I also have a theater background. Um, not, yeah, woohoo! Hey, would you read half of this with me? <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to hire her to read it. I know. <laughs> uh, I do, however, not presume to adopt a British accent because I came to Ohio via Kentucky. So I can do accents, but <laughs> not this kind. Um, <laughs> I can write with a British accent, I cannot read with one. So you're going to have to imagine. Um, I write during the, uh, well, I write nowadays, but I write about characters and storylines set during uh, the Regency time period in England, which is a few years before her beloved Victorian. Um, my first three books of this current series take place all in 1816, because that's the year I like. <laughs> Yep. And then you only have to research one year, <laughs> and by God, that makes it so much nicer. <laughs> but um, the research aspect of writing historicals is, um, I think, one of the things that an awful lot of romance writers say, oh, I can never do that. I want to write contemporary. Then these ladies add all this paranormal stuff, so they just make it up. You know? <laughs> 
I'm going to do that next <laughs> because um, this current series has no paranormal activity, so I had to rely on uh, what really existed, although I made up a lot of stuff in the book that comes out this summer, <laughs> so uh, clothing-wise, because they just didn't have some of that stuff then, and my gal needed it. Anyway, <laughs> um, and uh, this book, however, is, uh, it, it, it's not a sequel, but it's a follow-up to my first book. It uh, is, uh, it happens concurrently with the storyline in the first book, as does the third book. They're all happening kind of at the same time, following different people, and um, this book in particular, being the middle one of that series, um, was a little difficult to write because um, I couldn't finish up some of the important storylines because I had to keep some things open to deal with in the third book. Um, and I didn't want to answer too many questions that were still needing to be left unanswered so that the third book would be interesting. Um, but at the same time, I had to answer enough questions that when you get done reading this, you feel like, oh, I know what's going on. So that, that's kind of a challenge that I didn't really think through until I had already committed myself. And uh, my fourth book that I'm working on now, um, I just decided it happens five years later. <laughs> so now I know about 1822. Um, <laughs> The, uh, the storyline, I'll set it up for you here. My heroine is Julia. She is an actress. <gasps> Amazing. <coughs> um, during, uh, during the Regency time period, which is the early part of the 1800s, you don't need a history lesson, but just to kind of put a pin in it, um, think of Jane Austen. You know, I'm sure everybody has been privileged to sit through five or six renditions of Pride and Prejudice or something. Um, that is, uh, that's the clothes they're wearing. That's the time period. Um, actually, mine is slightly later, but it's just a matter of a couple years. So that's, that's what we're thinking of when we're picturing these people. We don't have bustles. We don't have fancy tall hats with, you know, things like that. It's different time period and there's no trains and uh, it's a lot happens between the Regency and the full-blown full blown Victorian era. And so even though we are both writing books set in England in the 1800s, they're pretty much a world apart even despite the paranormal elements. So uh, it's, uh, although that none of that will show up in the tiny little snippet that I chose to read today. My heroine, Julia, the actress, formerly was lovers with um, Lord Anthony Rasmore. Although I suppose he would be Anthony, but I'm not doing that. Um, but um, three years ago, they had this torrid affair. He wanted to marry her. She was game to go for it. But he has this evil bastard cousin. He really is a bastard, not just like a jerk. I mean. <laughs> He's cut off of the family, and he's jealous that Anthony has all the money and, you know, all the girls love him. So he determines to make Anthony's life miserable, and he uh, plots to steal her away and marry her for himself, which is what Anthony believes happened, and then he believes that she died 
um, giving birth to this other man's child. So for three years, he's just been miserable, grieving over his actress that he lost, and feeling like an idiot for having fallen for her charms to begin with. Well, she really is not dead. She's been hiding from the evil cousin. <clears throat> she never did marry him. And, uh, but if he finds her, he will destroy her and her father, who has an acting company, and they, the, they're no longer allowed in the legitimate theater in London. Uh, you had to have vouchers and stuff that, you know, you had to prove that you were worthy, and so they got all that revoked. And so they're kind of having to scrape, whereas before they've been doing pretty good for themselves. So the past three years have been rough on her. They're hiding from this evil cousin. Um, everybody has to think she's still dead. Well, now she's uncovered a plot. The cousin has had enough. He's going to murder our hero. And Julia has to make a decision. Is she going to come forward and let the hero know that she's still alive and warn him so that his life will be saved? Or is she going to just keep hiding so that she will be safe? Uh, what she decides to do is neither. She decides to uh, disguise herself as a man and secretly warn Anthony so that he, he gets the warning, but it's anonymous and he has no idea that Julia is still amongst the living for real. Um, and so what she's doing at this point, this is toward the beginning of the book, um, she and her friend Sophie, who's the gal with the fancy underwear in the third book, they are traveling incognito, um, and uh, Sophie is pretending to be a wife, and Julia is pretending to be the husband, and they're not, neither of them are very good at it. But um, they're just trying to keep a low profile, and they're stopped to eat dinner while they're traveling on the road. And uh, someone arrives at the posting house where they are dining, and that's but we will see. Let's throw that around somewhere. <clears throat> Kentucky Accent <laughs> by Jane Austen. <laughs> I can't wait to see this Lord Rasmore's face when he meets you again, Sophie was saying as they finished their supper. Julia cringed. Hopefully that will never happen. With luck, we'll find he's safely at Lord Dashford's home and I can simply send a warning message. Um, and then uh, he'll find out that Fitzgelder is after him and you and I can be off to meet Papa. But you don't want to see him again? Oh, heavens no. Well, we've come all this way and you're not even going to see the man? Exactly. Oh, Sophie was downcast. That's so sad. I was hoping the two of you might... I'm sorry, Sophie. That only happens in novels. It was a shame to disappoint the poor girl, but better she get such foolishness out of her mind now before she started expecting grand romance for her own life. Indeed, women like them should harbor no such hopes. Julia had learned that the hard way. Perhaps the truth would come easier for Sophie. We'll be done with this before you know it, Julia went on, hoping her light tone and warm smile would both encourage and distract her younger friend. Well, then we'll find Papa, and you'll become a part of our troupe. You're quite a hand at sewing, and perhaps we can coax you into acting as well. Acting? Oh, I'm sure I could never be so very good at that. All those lines I'd have to memorize. 
You've been play-acting the part of a blushing bride for three days now, and so far the audience seems quite enthralled. Julia said, sweeping her arm wide to indicate the patrons of the posting house, a few of whom had traveled this last leg of the journey on a mail coach with them. Sophie looked around the dim room and frowned. I believe our audience would be no less enthralled were I simply a chicken tucked under your arm. They'd hardly take a note of us at all. There, you see, you've played your part to perfection. Who's to say you might not make a memorable Juliet or Ophelia or, or Lord Lindley, Sophie said suddenly. Lord Lindley? I don't believe we have any scripts with him. But then Julia glanced up and she realized what Sophie meant. The doorway was filled with the elegant form of a man they had briefly met in London just as they were making their hasty escape. Lord Lindley, a good friend and confidant of the evil Fitzgelder. Sophie's eyes were huge and terrified and Julia wanted to slide under the table. Good heavens, if Lindley recognized them, he'd notified Fitzgelder of their whereabouts. They had to hide, they had to get out of here this very instant. There was nowhere they could go, nowhere in the room to hide. They were trapped. Julia's pulse pounded and she struggled to, to think, to come up with a scheme to protect them. What could she do? Where could they go? Suddenly, all coherent thoughts ceased. A familiar, broad-shouldered form appeared behind Linda. <coughs> Julia's lungs contracted. The air squeezed out of them in a whimper. Around her, the world disappeared and she was aware of only one thing. Anthony Rasmore was still alive. Thank God she wasn't too late. Fitzgelder's men hadn't succeeded in their plan. Anthony still lived and breathed and wore that smile of half amusement, half boredom she'd come to know so well three years ago, three long, painful years ago. He was alive and he was beautiful and he was cold. When his gaze fell on her, she recoiled both inwardly and out. The chill that emanated in his hazel eyes was as unfamiliar as the image that had been greeting her in the mirror since she and Sophie had taken up this masquerade. Indeed, the Anthony Rasmore who followed Lindley into the poorly lit common room was a man much changed from the man who had taken Julia's virtue as well as her heart.
period you're writing in and how much research you do, people need to be aware that they're going to learn their history <laughs> through your books as well as enjoy a terrific story. And yes, you have fun, but you're serious, dedicated writers. So I kind of misspoke, and I didn't mean it that way, because from my heart, I have learned so much history from fiction that it's amazing. I never would have learned a history book that way. So just give all the good cards in the history books. Yeah. They do, because they don't deal with the the matters of the heart. And that is really what life is about. But we're now going to move on to not the historical romance. Well, um, but you're going to be, what are you going to be reading from today? I'm going to be reading from a humorous road trip book that I'm working on. Oh, okay. New stuff. New stuff. Cool. New stuff. Well, from the. Uh, Sublime to ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> what accent are you going to use? <laughs> you don't want to know. Because I don't do accents. Uh, I'm having to get my husband to read it. it, it and this is not your favorite thing to do, read, right? No, not really. Uh, <laughs> well, I like reading, it's not that Right, and I agree with you totally. Uh, but we're going to have the, the privilege and the pleasure of hearing Elisa Hendricks read a bit to us uh, from a piece that she's working on, a new, new novel. Mm -hmm. um, but Elisa is, uh, Elisa is from Central Ohio. Uh, her specialty is romance novels with a paranormal bent. But I think we're looking at something new today. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, her recent titles include Star Raiders, The Sword, The Pen, and Star Crash. Uh, do we have a little bit of futuristic in your books? Star Crash and Star Raiders are futuristics. That's what I. That's what I was referring Sword to. Sword in the Pen is actually uh, contemporary fantasy. All right. So with that, uh, I introduce Elisa, and uh, look forward to hearing from your new work. <laughs> and forgive me if I mispronounce words, even though I wrote them. I I've written historical. I wrote a Western historical. Um, I would never attempt to write anything about England because that's way too much research. <laughs> research. I, I was. I had enough to do. I just researched the Comanche Indians. You know, that was easy. See, I knew nothing of that. <laughs> terrifying. Yeah. And I'm then sorry. I decided that even that was too much research, so I decided to make up my own universe. <laughs> I went about 500 years into the future uh, and wrote Star Crash, which was originally going to be a short, erotic story. I wanted to see how long I could keep my characters naked. <laughs> so now it's a long, erotic story. <laughs> and I entered it in a contest, and they liked it, and um, wanted to see the rest of it. And I had to write 50,000 words in about two months. <laughs> Never have done that again. Never will do that again. Uh, I call Star Crash my Planet of the Apes meets Star Trek. <laughs> and then I went on and I wrote a fantasy, which I call The Sword of the Pen, which I call um, Xena the Warrior Princess meets Stranger Fiction. <laughs> and then I went on to do another, went back to my um, universe 
in the stars, and I go with Star Raiders, which is Pirates of the Caribbean meets Star Wars. The book I'm going to read to you for right now is completed. It is sitting at an agent waiting to see if they want to take us on, because it's a collaboration with another author who's crazier than I am. Um, it's called Grannies and Trannies, Vegas or Bust. <laughs> Grannies and Trannies, Vegas or Bust. <laughs> and basically, it's the Golden Girls meets the Birdcage, a road trip to Las Vegas to rescue friends and mom. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and actually, this is the start of chapter two, which we are seriously considering making chapter one. Because even though we love chapter one, which is titled Hearing Aids and Blowjobs. Um, we decided that uh, chapter two, Vegas Robust, uh, really gives a flavor of the story more than chapter one. Chapter one, or chapter two, Vegas Robust. <coughs> the words printed in pink lipstick on the back of a fast food tray weren't what caught B.J. Wilkins' eye. Not at first, anyways. It was the sight of the two old lady, old women sitting on the curb in front of a ramshackle truck stop that had seen better days and much better patrons. The ladies were as out of place in this rural Midwest American garden spot as him. And the group of the rough and the fat can't read. And the group of rough truckers whispering and pointing at the old woman knew it. Bad idea, boss, Teddy warned from his perch behind the wheel of a big school bus. He gestured a stumpy arm at the truckers. Don't go all KSA on me. Look at the size of those guys. KSI is my line, lines informed Teddy. Don't be stealing my lines, Minnie Elvis. Turn around. We need gas, BJ. Teddy was right, of course. BJ was no knight in shining armor, no matter what Liza wanted to believe. A shining tutu, maybe, and a tarnished one at that. It was a dreadful idea to get involved, but BJ had a gut feeling it was the right thing to do. Years of ignoring his gut had never done him any good, which is why he lived by a code to always follow his heart. Right now, he had a feeling, feeling his heart was sitting on that curb. If he didn't stop, he'd never be able to live with himself. Those women had no clue how much trouble they could get themselves in being alone in a place like this. Yeah, turn around, Liza chimed in. I gotta drain the snake. I told you not to get the big gulp, Camp said, with her natural long black hair. When she was in costume, she was a dead ringer for the singer she did best, Cher. Well, except for the fact that she'd been born a man. With those new breasts, she might be thinking about changing that in the near future. BJ wasn't sure. Liza gave the older woman a head bob straight out of the ghetto she'd probably never seen. Um, I was thirsty after singing all night. I need to keep my vocal cords hydrated for the audition. And it's none of your flippin' business how much pop I drink. Just use the toilet on the bus, Charles suggested from the security corner in the back. Liza screwed up her face in disgust at the Tina Turner wannabe. Yeah, no way. No, I ain't letting you dykes fill up the turd toad with your crap, Teddy shouted. Don't blow your O-ring, Teddy Camp snapped. After the girls, including BJ, had refused to empty the sewage containers on the bus's bathroom, Teddy told them he would drive to Vegas, but the facilities were off limits. Girls, BJ reprimanded. With a stern look at Teddy, he pointed to the truck stop with more determination. Your funeral, Teddy grumbled, but spun the huge wheel of the ancient school bus. The gears ground and the brakes squealed as he stomped on the extenders strapped to the pedals. Teddy was a little person, but he handled the big bus as if he were average size. He did an illegal U-turn and then bounced over the uneven gravel lot. The moment they came to a shutter and stopped outside the ramshackle truck stop, Liza raced the door and leapt out of the bus like a gazelle, which was quite a feat considering she had on five-inch stilettos. Liza, get your skinny ass back here. The real note of panic in Cam's voice disturbed BJ more than anything else up to this point. A nervous Cam was not a good sign. 
B.J. Hayes sent after Liza. A girl was beautiful, no doubt about it, but she was way too naive about the cruelty of the world. If she were in street clothes, she probably would have passed for a woman, unless she was still being lazy and doing the European thing by not shaving her hips. But no natural-born woman wore a pink sequin even gown at 10 in the morning with full stage makeup. B.J. looked from Liza's long blonde lips to the old women's. The women noticed their outlandish appearances immediately, but they seemed oblivious to the danger they were in from the truckers. The question was, who should be rescued first? Heedless of the huge addition Liza had just added to their growing list of problems, she shashayed into the building. The three narrowly truckers smoking by their big rooms were suddenly more interested in her than the old ladies. Chetty jumped off his seat and clambered down the bus steps effortlessly, effortlessly, though they were way too tall for someone of their small stature. He and BJ shared a look before he hollered into the bus. Charles, you're gonna have to pump gas. We've got a situation brewing out here. Are you on crack? Not in this miniskirt and not in this lifetime, the black man. The black man lifted one lacquered brow. Then he sighed, I have to do everything myself, don't I? The truckers had tossed their smokes aside and advanced on the building. Trouble gleaming in their eyes, even from this distance. BJ's gut clenched. He should have known this place wasn't going to throw out the welcome after people like them. Folks seldom did. Teddy took charge and pointed at the two ladies. We'll see if they're okay. I'll take care of Liza. Damn girl ain't got no sense. She's probably in the women's room pissing standing up. BJ had been protective of Liza since she started working at Eva Donna's and he first met her. But he wasn't sure what hold she had on Teddy. Would he just holler at her, or would he actually stick his neck out and defend her if he need be? Teddy was sometimes part of their act at Diva Donna's, but he wasn't the sort to give a damn about people. Most of the time, he was barely civil, except when he was getting his drink on. Then he could be downright sweet. Teddy, wait, BJ Possum. I don't think that's such a good idea. Correct that, Charlie popped his head, winked head out the bus, school bus window. Sending a midget Elvis impersonator after a drag queen in a woman's bathroom constitutes a terrible idea. About as terrible as an idea as those shoes you're wearing, Charles came at it. The two on the bus started arguing, but BJ tuned them out. It was just their way. He reached down to stop Teddy, but the mini Elvis was agile and easily avoided his grasp. At the entrance of the building, he turned back and flashed his crooked teeth. Two trannies, two trannies in a woman's bathroom as truckers hot on the trail. Even worse idea, Beth, he said, reminding BJ he was still in costume. I can fly under the radar, or at least under the stall door. You stick out like a zebra at a camel race. Is, is that its own, I mean, when you write a book, 
publisher, or do you think if you go too heavy on the paranormal, heavier on the paranormal or the science fiction, that it'll end up in the science fiction? These are the questions of my life. Yeah. These are honestly, yeah. this is the, this is, for the longest time, um, the, one of the reasons why my book uh, went through rounds and rounds of lots of publishers saying, we really like it, we don't know where to shelve it. Uh, it's true, I think that, you know, romance does defy category and yet, publishers and readers want desperately to categorize it. We are human beings who want to put things in boxes so that we know what to look for when we shop. Right. We want to know, you know, if you're looking for a musician, you want to know what kind of music they play, all these various things. I understand the need for categorization. It was difficult for me because I write gothic, Victorian, fantasy, paranormal, romance with a little bit of horror because I really like the spooky stuff. You know, I, with a young adult crossover, you know, I've got like seven adjectives that people have used banding around with my books. So I had a lot of people say, we like it, we don't know where to shelve it. I ended up with a publisher who was known for doing romance. That's what they did most of. So because of that, my book ended up on the romance shelf. Also because I am a woman, there is sometimes, you know, there, there's, they're like, oh, women, they write those romance novels. Um, and so that's just a default for some. But you'll notice that with my book cover, um, it's, a, it's a book cover that you'd m maybe see more on the fantasy shelf. Well, so, you have so much title, they wouldn't have room for exactly, it. Yeah. <laughs> that's the other thing, too. This, this is the other thing, too. This is my agent's title. That's the thing. One things that uh, readers don't tend to know is that authors have no say over their titles or their book covers, do we? Well, it depends on the publisher. It's true. It's true. It's it's true. Up, yeah. But I mean, and, and sometimes they'll ask you, but at the Did end of the day. Did you buy your editor a car? You should have done that. <laughs> <laughs> But, but Star Crash, I, my original title was The Human Breed, but they said that wasn't romance enough. Right, right. Um, my second two titles were my titles. You could have well, just once, put an once I, knew, once I knew that it was going to be, my agent basically yeah, said, <laughs> my, my agent said to me, you have a book that's hard to categorize. If you have a long descriptive title, we're going to know that it is, we're going to know the time period, we're going to have a sense of this sort of fantastical thing. And so once this was set, then all the rest of my books have impossibly long titles as well, because now that's a brand. But it's awesome. But yeah, it's your it brand. Works. I mean, you it, hear that, and you immediately go, oh, I know what that is. But of course, it's referred to as the blue one or the red one. Um, <laughs> um, and, but, uh, but on the spine, it says historical fantasy. Even though it's on the romance shelf, it says historical fantasy. Now, my, my, the second book, it says historical fantasy slash romance. So they're even starting to try and like you know sub, sub, sub categorize all of this. So it just depends. I have, I've had bookstores that have shelved me in the fantasy aisle. I've had bookstores that shelved me in romance. It just depends uh, on all of those things. It's uh, about what the publisher says they want to do, where they want to put it, what the publisher is known for. Um, even if they're trying to expand, sometimes they'll still default where the publisher's known for. So if that's, I think, this is Dorchester, which has the, this is the leisure imprint of Dorchester. If you look at um, the Futuristic Fantasy and Paranormal Chapters um, website, which they do have, they have a really good explanation of the difference between fantasy novels and romance novels. And you can have a romance novel that's a fantasy, you can have a science fiction novel that's a romance. It depends on where the focus is on. Is the focus on the fantasy world or the paranormal world, or is the focus on the romance? And it can be as, you know, the amount is like 51%, 49%. You can have really a really balanced one, or you can have one that's you know maybe 10% fantasy element, but it's the romance that drives the story. So that's the difference between a romance novel and any other genre. But in the romance genre, you can cover anything. You can have a 
mystery, you can have a thriller, you can have a paranormal, you can have a contemporary. A Western. Western, Western. yes, yeah. lots of yeah. Westerns. They're relationship stories, and one of the things, the focus is different, because not, I mean, the focus isn't always on the hero and the heroine. I have the focus on a lot of my secondary characters, and because really the, the thing that for me that makes romance compelling is that they're relationship stories. Actually, you know, there are tons of romances in all kinds of books that we read. It just does depend on how much you do focus on that on a given novel. But for me, just that romance wasn't enough. I needed the spooky stuff, I needed the other things, which is why I blend the other categories. It's, for me, it's, that's not just one, enough. But the focus is, the, the focus is for me, the most important thing at the end of the day are the relationships between the characters, not just the hero and heroine, everybody. So because of that, it retains sort of a human element <coughs> amidst the trappings of the world and the paranormal stuff that I throw in there. And that's for me why I keep coming back to an idea of romance is because it's about human relationships. It's character driven. Yeah, exactly. The character, character. And that's, if you read a mystery, you could read a whole series of mysteries about one character, the detective or the cozy. And by the, you can read 12 books, and at the end of the 12 books, you don't really know much more about that character than when you started. They haven't really changed or grown. Well, sometimes that's what you want in a right. crazy mystery. You right. Know, you I want, want to read this character because it's the same person the whole mm -hmm. time. And, you know, that's. You, you what, see it in what a lot that of TV genre. shows. Yeah. The minute they start making the characters grow or change, the ratings go down. The ratings go down, mm -hmm. the story's over. Mm -hmm. Like in, I don't know if anybody remembers Moonlighting. Oh, I love Moonlighting. Yeah. I love Bruce Moonlighting. Willis. My yeah, parents said. told me about it. Yeah. <laughs> Gee, thanks. I'm clinging well, to now. this. Castle. Anybody watch Castle? <clears throat> There's a really strong sexual chemistry between the um, female lead detective and Castle, who's a um, boss. Yes. <laughs> the minute those two people get together, and they're going to have to change the whole series, or it'll be over. Right, right. Because the minute that relationship is resolved, they lose what brings people back. To That's what happened to the X-Files. Yeah. It, yeah. The minute the Mulder and Scully got don't together. Don't go yeah. to read, to watch that show because of what the mystery that they solve every week. Yeah. That's just the backdrop. That's right. the backstory. Exactly. We had some questions. So it's a long, it's a series romance. <laughs> we had questions. Oh, over there. We read what we like to write, or we write what we like to read. I, I actually found that I read in all these different genres, and I wanted to pull them all together. So for me, I wanted to write the book that I wanted to read, because I was reading Tolkien, and I was reading Harry Potter, and I was reading Edgar Allan Poe, and I was reading Jane Austen. And I really wanted the Bronte sisters to get together with Tolkien and write a book. And they weren't going to do that, so... Because they're dead. It's just not know, fair. It's just not fair. Well, maybe so, they're channeling through you. See, there you go. So, so for me, for me, it was... There's the, one there and one there. On my, on my shoulder. We, we're, always, we're always voraciously... We're always voraciously eating things. And somehow that factors into what is that we love, I think. Um, I can't read what I'm writing while I'm writing it, though. So I read Victorian mysteries because it is a different genre while I'm trying to write so that I'm not... Well, it gets to be overload, you know? Yeah. I mean, for me, yeah. it's just, you know, good God, <laughs> not more of this. Who's right, gonna work what right. to the ball? No. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Need a breather. Did you have a question earlier? Did, did somebody's hand go up over here? Sorry. Do we, <laughs> do we have any right? Yeah. I, I just had a question for this about research. Do you have a certain, 
Did you have like sort of a certain aspect of history you were looking at more than others? Like, like you need sort of a background on political history. Right. I, th I think that depends on kind of what you're into. History. You know, I mm -hmm. kind of like the fashion stuff. So I sort of keep track of some of that. I don't like to write a lot of description, though. So I generally know a whole lot more about what I'm writing about than what I put in there because it's not because I'm I'm writing a romance and my focus is on the relationship and it's not on the clothes and it's not on what kind of carriage they're in. I've gotten all fascinated on carriages lately and who cares about that, you know? Um, and there are other authors who do that. And, and there are and readers that like that. And there are readers who love that. I'm not one of those readers. I, I want lots of story. I want lots of personal conflict and uh, great relational stuff. And, and I'm not all that on the political stuff. I know other people are, you know, the political backdrop and, you know, that's That's why thing. I created my own universe so I could make my own political. <laughs> I, for me, I came into the Victorian era because of the language. I loved the language yeah. that Victorian authors used, and I wanted to live in that. So for me, it was the language that drew me in, and then I, I, the inspiration for the story came in a bit of a fever dream. Um, <laughs> but it was, you know, but the Victorian, it was always in, the Victorian era is my mental playground. It's my sandbox. When I was in college, I did, I, I pursued a course and a, and a focus study in the Victorian era, so I actually did go, sort of go to school for the era that I loved. And, um, and then, and then it was a, then for me, I had an overview of the time period. So then it was spot checking for me. It was saying, okay, it's 1888. What's going on in 1888? Oh, Jack the Ripper. So I use all of the actual murders in the book, and I do I use all the details. It's just that what does it is not a human. So and all of my my favorite part of the research was all the ghosts I use in the book are actual documented London haunts. I met Richard Jones who writes all the ghost books about London for Barnes and Noble and he's been really supportive and he and I've just, you know, we could talk about ghosts for years. So um, I so I actually because for me that was important because I wanted to have a flavor of London when I you know I, I did go to London to research and they have to drag me back on the plane every time because I just want to stay. Um, but so for me, it was place-based specificity. I, I had a general overview, and then I would zero in on the things that the, the book really needed. Because you can over-research your novel, and then you put so much stuff in there, and you're like, oh, I'm really glad that you spent two years researching this, but it shows that you're, all your two years, you're trying to yeah, cram into one novel. It's like novel. an iceberg with research, yeah. about 10% yeah. will yeah. make it into yeah. the book. Right, right. But you have to have that base, otherwise. Well, and that's why you need to be writing something that you really enjoy if you don't like doing research, don't write this perfect. Mm -hmm. Right. About any book that you do, whether I, if I decided to write a book about a lawyer, I'd have to research lawyers. Because I don't know anything about the law. <laughs> I, or, worked, I worked as parents. I did a lot of research on transactions. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. <laughs> I was going to say, a lot of Priscilla, Road Queen of the Desert watching. Lisa. Oh, yeah, I watched Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Um, that's on Broadway right now. Well, it needs it needs to be authentic. 
you know, even if you're making up your own world, right. it has to be even consistent. if you're changing Jack the Ripper into some sort of demon from hell, it's still, there needs to be something about it that makes it authentic, and the reader has to be able to believe that there is, you know, that this could be, you know, that whole suspended disbelief mm -hmm. thing, that, mm -hmm. uh, that there's a careful balance there. Anybody here that's interested in writing or writes? Or are you just an avid reader? Or are you just looking for extra credit? Or for that's cookies? fine. That's fine. <laughs> extra credit is good. Uh, it got me through college. That's extra credit. not to. Now there are a few authors out there who have refused to grant those rights to their publishers and I, I, uh, for me, it's so it's easy like, to pirate. I'm like, well whatever. I mean, it's readers, so easy to buy. I want, I want readers to have access to books in whatever format they want. I, I don't, I, I want to have print copies because mm -hmm. a, a bulk yeah, of my readership like still that. is pr our print readers and I don't want to alienate that. Right. Linda and I were just talking about for, for the library system you really want want to? It's a lot easier for the Ohio Wanna to have. I mean, they can't really do anything with digital copies. So, but I mean, for me, I want it. I want it at the. I, I want both the um, electronic and the print available at the same time. Yep. The minute that it's out, yep. I want anyone who right wants there. it to be able to get it however they want it. So. But usually that's uh, the publisher handles the publisher. that. Yeah. Exactly. It depends on your contract. When you sign a contract to um, you grant them the rights to publish your book. You'd say, well, we're going to publish it this way, this way, and this way. And I'd say, yes or no. Well, it's kind of all maybe not an answer. Have you guys noticed, maybe too early, that you have a, a new cadre or a new, a new a, of electronic like, mm -hmm. like readers yes. that mm -hmm. are accessing uh -huh. Yes. Mm -hmm. I say it's because romance is in the section I would browse. I walk right. from the sure. table. But when I'm sitting there playing on my notes, I just open myself up to go to the side where it's like searching. Well, is the great thing about that is the, is the suggestions. If you like this, you'll also like right. this. And what they yeah, don't do, awesome. they don't limit genres. They say, you know, I've got, some, I've got readers that come to me from the fantasy aisle because readers who liked this also bought this or also bought. And so suddenly you've got cross And they wouldn't have been in readership. that romance aisle looking for your book. Right, exactly. So, no, I think that's, that's an awesome thing. Yeah, and I, I think that, I mean, a lot, you hear a lot of authors and people in the publishing industry right now are like, oh, no, e-readers are killing us. We're dying. It's just um, changing. But it's changing. And it, and it has, I mean, some publishers have had lots of trouble trying to keep up with it. And uh, I know my publisher is trying to pretend it doesn't really exist. <laughs> but they're, they're yeah. having, well, my, my first book was with a small it. electronic press. It was still out there. People thought that the printing press was going to ruin books forever. So we're just in another paradigm shift. It's fine. Mm -hmm. We'll be fine. Yeah. Five years. Be done, no problem. Oh, that's what they said in uh, 99. 
it's going to be longer than five years. <laughs> yeah, we're fine. I, I, been I saying don't think we're ever going to get like storytelling. It's is like not a going contractor. Away. Two I mean, stories. I don't storytelling. Paper going books away. are going away until they no. say you can't cut down trees anymore. Right. Right. Exactly. And paper I books are going to be here. I agree. Keeping that electronic. I mean, Ohio had to collect paper, and some of the things that you don't collect e-books. How? Why? You can't keep up with that technology. You know, I got a book for Christmas, and I love it, and I'm a CD but listener. Where? It's in cyberspace somewhere. And what yeah, that's the thing for, yeah, for, for, yeah. The, for people who are relying on funding resources, they can't go out and buy the next thing for their entire right. I have manuscripts that I wrote, and they're on those little teeny floppies, you know. Which you can no and longer get to. Where do you, there's not a computer on the planet that can read yeah. that anymore, you know. Well, in the, in the uh, recycling bin, yeah. yeah. Well, and the thing is, for researchers, we used to have paper manuscripts that went back and forth with, the editor's notes in green or red, and then the corrections. And we have, I mean, that's a wonderful research tool. Oh, I'm glad you guys don't have my early drafts. I'm sorry. Well, like that's, it's yeah. fine that you have them, but I'm so one, glad that doesn't. One children's author who has given us from her research notes to her first rough draft of chapters to her first manuscript wow. and what's gone back and forth. And then finally, well, I'm the book and some fan letters. Well, I have. Do you know how important it is to little kids to come in and look at those manuscripts and see that the teacher that they have has done the same thing the editor has done with the mm -hmm. red marks mm -hmm. all over? And seeing the process of that growth, we will not see with the floppy disks Although or I can, the thumb drives. I have all my edited versions. I have a, you know, every time I edit, I keep, I store, I'd have to print out about, you know, this yeah. high stack of paper right, in order right, right. to yeah. uh, recreate it, but it's all there and I also have it I stored in various places. in years. I do every so, once in a while. Yeah. Sometimes I just, <laughs> nice to see it. <clears throat> a little chip right here right. and when you get to that point of view with the, the digital rights management, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. the fact that you can't get <coughs> stuff you download on no, and really copy a Kindle because there's the way the book is written where a book is a book is a book. Right. But I, I, yeah. I personally yeah. believe that in 10 years a standardization, a standard will right. be used. It's a matter of I don't know. It'll change. It's like it'd be nice yeah, if yeah. VHS really beat out beta. Uh, DVD beat out VHS. Now yeah, Blu-ray we'll taking over from DVD. We'll see. Who we'll have to next. see. And yeah. streaming is the next big thing. Right. You're not even going to have the. Yeah, disc. I don't think Blu-ray is going to have much chance to really get a foothold in Before there. Before before streaming, just, yeah. yeah. Right. The, the advantage of the book is that, with the exception of and it's not going away. Like there's still going to be a there's still going to be a market for print books. Mm -hmm. I just think that you're going to see less. I don't I don't think publishers are going to print fifty thousand copies yeah. anymore. Right. Um, I think they might you know pare that down well, a little bit. Well, they're already environmentally. Yeah, I'm fine with that. that. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, I'm totally fine with that. It's just, I, I don't want print well, to go so away Well, because so many copies of, for years and years have been just destroyed. Right. That's what happens to books that get returned. They get the cover stripped and they get put in a dumpster. That's so a horrible. That's the whole paradigm. <clears throat> that's a horrible, and that's a horrible yeah, practice. So I'm, I'm for the change, provided that we're still able to make a living doing what we're doing. That's all I really want to do. I just want to make a living as a writer. I don't need to be, I don't need to be a meal, I don't need to be J.K. Rowling being the first billionaire writer. I just want to make a living as a writer. I wouldn't mind. Only about 5% of writing working authors make a living at it. I know. So, so, it's, like so any, it's a goal. It's, it's a goal. It's like any creative right. thing. How many musicians actually make a living being musicians? How many artists actually make a living being artists? It's a creative endeavor, and most writers write because they have stories to tell. If we make money on it, hey, that's a bonus. That's a very good point because there are two writers making a living at their craft, at their work, with their talents. I want to thank you all, and I know that some people yeah. need to leave because we're running a little bit over, and that's okay. And I think you all will answer other questions. I will, yeah, I will, I will stick around if yeah. anybody has any questions. Yeah, I will too. And then if you grab a bookmark, you can always reach me. Yeah, well, there website. are resources. Any questions there? As I always tell, I used to teach writing workshops, and I always used to tell my students, um, ask me any question. If I don't know the answer, I will be happy to make one up for you because I am, after all, a writer of fiction. <laughs> I'd like to recognize Chris Branch, who's the president of the Central Ohio Fiction Writers uh, Group, and, and she really helped pull this together for us. So. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.